What's up, guys? It's your girl, Ginger, the true crime queen. I'm reminding you now that listener discretion is advised. The dark nature of this show is not suitable for young ears or those that are sensitive to graphic material. But without further ado, let's get it. Welcome back, you guys. In today's story, some fucking asshole is lighting fires almost nonstop for six months straight in the Seattle area during the fall of 1992, and for seemingly no reason at all, just to be a dick. It took a specially formed task force, some Mindhunter-style detective work, and a set of brutally honest parents before this piece of shit, pyromaniac known as Paul Kenneth Keller, would be stopped. It's definitely not a case I've seen listed anywhere else as far as podcasts go, so I'm excited to hopefully tell everyone a new story today. There's just going to be one quick trigger warning near the end for a sexual assault claim, but I'll give you another heads up when we get there too. Paul Kenneth Keller was born on January 6th of 1966 in Linwood, Washington, just north of Seattle, to George and Martha Keller, who were and still are very devout members of the Lutheran Church. For his parents, problems with Paul started right out the fucking womb, literally. Now, this first incident wouldn't really be his fault or anything, but I read that during his actual birth back in 66, apparently his umbilical cord had somehow become unattached from his little body, causing a great deal of blood loss. That almost resulted in Paul losing his life just minutes after he took his first breath. Now, he was obviously able to recover, and Paul would actually end up being the oldest of two siblings, a middle girl named Ruth and a younger brother named Ben. The problems didn't stop as a baby, though. Paul's mom, Margaret, had said during one of the documentaries made about Paul that even at a very early age, she got the hint that Paul just seemed to be the type of kid that has a knack for seeing others in misery. Margaret remembers watching a five-year-old Paul deliberately push his baby sister down into the snow, and when his mom was later, like, trying to talk to him about it like you normally do, he just didn't have that innocent childhood empathy that most kids normally show, and she remembers it quite vividly. Being that the family is very involved in the church, as well as their surrounding community of Linwood, while growing up, Paul and his family would often volunteer down at the local retirement homes. They'd play games, they would read, and just spend time with the elderly folks, and then comfort their family members after they had passed on. Which sounds sweet as hell, but you just fucking wait, because that little fact becomes pretty unsettling later down the timeline. According to his father, he and Margaret were always on edge when they knew that Paul was interacting with his little brother or sister. They wouldn't dare leave him alone with them for too long. And seriously though, Paul was such a little shit that he'd even tripped his baby brother Ben with a bucket of golf balls that he placed near the staircase. And this poor little baby legit ends up in a body cast from his ankles all the way to his chest. And still, Paul doesn't give one single flying fuck, according to his dad. I'm not even kidding you. On another occasion, their dad once caught Paul pushing his little sister Ruth underwater in their backyard pool, and his dad had to, like, bust his ass all the way down the stairs and outside to stop Paul from drowning her. And ever since, Ruth apparently has a very real fear of fire, very much thanks to prick-ass Paul and his bullshit antics. I'm really getting, you know, like, gauge from Pet Cemetery vibes, you know what I mean? After coming to the realization that Paul completely lacks empathy for anything whatsoever, his parents would actually reach out and try different types of therapies and counselors for Paul. Margaret said that they spent years trying different medications. There was over like 49 different tests done to Paul, all just to find out that he would be considered a hyperactive child. 
And when they were like, okay, well, how do we help him? The doctor told him that they were basically going to be stress-ridden parents forever. Good old doctors of the 70s, go figure. They eventually did get Paul on some beneficial type of medication for the hyperactivity, though, and Paul's interest did seem to fade from tormenting his siblings to something seemingly more productive, at the time anyways. Most people brush it off to natural boyish interest that starts with, you know, fire trucks until it later becomes the clear makings of a piece of shit pyromaniac, hence the new name that I gave him. First it was, you know, the sirens that appealed to Paul, then it was of course the big red trucks, but from about age 7, Paul would actually sit in his room and obsessively listen to his police radio scanner for nearby fire calls. When one would come in, he would then hop onto his little bike and ride over to watch the firemen battle the flames. After the fire was extinguished, Paul spent more time talking to the firefighters and he learned lots about what it takes to fight fires for a living. Pretty quick though, Paul's interest in fighting fires would turn a lot less cute when he was caught starting a fire in the vacant home next to their own. When he was busted, his parents actually made Paul sit there and get lectured by the firefighters that came to put out the blaze. And I would think that's, you know, appropriate too. I mean, you would think that a kid who was obsessed with firefighters might listen to them a little bit, but Paul's interest in the fire department in general would continue, and further down the road, Paul had been given a really nice camera from his dad. Paul then used it to literally take hundreds of photos of neighborhood fires, fire trucks, firemen, burnt down houses, literally anything fire-related all of it. As a teenager, and aside from being pretty much a loner who's only interested in listening to his radio scanner, Paul would end up graduating from Watson Groen Christian School in the northern Seattle area. At some point during his later teenage years, Paul had apparently convinced his parents that he didn't need counseling or his medications anymore, and it would seem that he was on the right path. He even worked up the nerve to volunteer at one of the Everett Washington Fire Departments. It turns out, though, that he was actually said to have been dismissed, twice. I haven't heard specifically why, but I bet it has something to do with his mental health record, honestly. But when he's 23, guess what? Paul ends up meeting the woman that would become his first wife while attending the First Baptist Church, and I believe this is 1989. Honestly, I can't find shit on this woman, though. She seems to have completely looked out, and her name has been omitted from everything I can find on this guy. But by 1991, not even two years later, they quickly divorce. I think Paul actually ended up switching churches, and his father sort of indicated that the marriage failed with Paul's obsession in the fire department being a pretty big factor in the divorce. On the outside, Paul would seem like a super normal guy, maybe he's just quiet and kind of shy, but the few people who are forced to deal with his bullshit know he has a really bad temper too. And after his divorce, Paul would sort of start on this downward spiral. After his wife left him, he was apparently fired from his security job that he was working. He was then forced to file bankruptcy even. He managed to land another job as a bookkeeper, but again was shortly fired from there too after it was found out that a suspicious but small fire had apparently broke out at his office desk. Which now I can only picture Dwight Schrute from The Office during the fire episode. Does anyone smell anything smoky? Did you bring your jerky in again? <laughs> and because he's obviously not going to leave with a good reference from that place, his dad, George, who knows Paul is struggling right now and really just wants to see him get himself out of the slump that he seems to be in since the divorce and the bankruptcy. So being the kind, sweet, giving man that Paul's father is, he offers a job at their family's successful advertising business where his brother and sister also work. But even the mom, Margaret, was like, Are you fucking dumb? The fuck? Because that motherhood intuition is pretty spot on. 
But Paul actually started out doing so well with his customers that George honestly thought for a little bit that Paul might end up running the family business one day, but nothing lasts forever. Even though he had started out great, it wasn't long before Paul started slipping on his end of the job requirements. Paul was also starting to drink pretty regularly while simultaneously growing some massive porn addiction and no longer attending church. Soon there's problems at the advertising office every single day. Paul would start fights with both of his siblings and even other employees, and one time, as their mom Margaret was walking into the office early one morning, she caught Paul fighting with his sister and his hands were around her neck trying to strangle her over something. So that would be two times now that this fucking psycho has been caught trying to kill his little sister and the mom Margaret is fucking done. So she begins trying to convince Paul's father George to fire him from the advertising company before he does anything even worse for their family or their business. But his dad, George, just doesn't have the heart to do it and he gives him an ultimatum instead. Sort of like, get your shit together or you're out of a job. Well then get your shit together! Get it all together and put it in a backpack! All your shit! So it's together. And if you gotta take it somewhere, take it somewhere, you know? Take it to the shit store and sell it. Or or put it in a shit museum. I don't care what you do. You just gotta get it together. Get your shit together. So instead of slowing down on the booze or going back to therapy, Paul apparently decides to take out his frustrations on the city of Seattle by starting a fire almost every day for literally six months straight. Boxing, yoga, hiking. No, fuck that. I'm gonna light this entire city on fire. The first couple fires reportedly set by Paul were on the evening of August 6th of 1992. He had three separate fires in random unfinished homes in the next town over from his. Paul also made sure to call his father just after starting them in this creepy way he mentions to his dad George just how beautiful the sunset is and that his dad should go outside and take a look, probably to see the smoke off in the distance because he's fucking weird like that. And just three days later, on August 9th, there would be three different church fires all on the same night. So it would kind of seem clear that someone is purposely setting these fires, maybe even targeting religious groups specifically. But regardless, one of the three churches actually decides that despite their enormous loss, they would continue to operate and hold their Sunday services right there in the parking lot next to their freshly burnt down church. Obviously, though, an investigation is going to be starting. Because who the fuck is burning down all these churches and why? Especially trained dogs were brought into the church ruins looking for any accelerants or clues that might have been left behind by the person or the persons responsible, but but investigators and canines are unable to identify any evidence of accelerants in any of the recently reported fires. There was also no vandalism or burglary connections of any type to the buildings, which sort of told the pros that they were looking for someone who just is seemingly interested in stirring shit up and wreaking havoc. And the fires wouldn't stop coming, though. They would literally be a fire call almost every single night, sometimes multiple fires in one night, leaving the fire department resources spread pretty thin. At first, the calls would be to, like, older, abandoned, vacant buildings and warehouses, and then slowly through the weeks of fire after fire, they would also start including people's actual homes, both vacated and occupado. There was even a shopping mall that incurred over $8 million in damages as well, and I heard on one of the shows that I watched that there was even a total of 12 fires reported in just one single night. Which would be scary, honestly. I mean, someone has gone around starting fires on top of any fires that might, like, naturally start, or anyone else who's fucking around too. I mean, that's a lot to deal with. At times, there would literally be people who were forced to jump from their homes when those inside the burning homes couldn't wait any longer for fire engines to lower them down. 
Families were losing their homes left and right, and some people who lived in the area felt scared enough to start some neighborhood night watch patrols that guarded the homes and, like, local businesses from any further damages. And the biggest problem at first is that all these different fires are occurring in, like, Tacoma one day, Seattle the next, and then over in Shoreline, and then back over in Everett. It just everywhere and they aren't all being recognized as possibly done by the same person yet but they would almost seem endless here when i'm listing them on paper and to the fire departments it would just seem like the person starting these fires would know exactly the right places to set them so that he would leave people in their most vulnerable state and because now there's rumors of an arsonist or a possible team of them working within the community paul's family would never consider that it was their own son setting these seemingly constant fires. And so far, and against all odds, there were no reported fatalities related to any of the fires yet. And that was until September 22nd of 1992, when a major fire broke out at the Seattle Four Freedoms Retirement Home, which was reportedly housing over 400 residents at the time. It seems as though Paul had just, like, pulled off the screen to an open window and held a lighter to one of the ground floor residents' beds. By the time the retirement center had been extinguished, there would be three deaths attributed to this fire. 93-year-old Bertha Nelson died of smoke inhalation from the fire. 77-year-old Mary Doris also died from smoke inhalation. And 72-year-old Adeline Stockness reportedly died of a heart attack while trying to escape the flames. Interestingly, though, this tragedy, the fire officials attributed the cause of the fire to a resident's displaced cigarette, and it wasn't listed originally for the string of recent fires and the suspected arson cases. So it wasn't investigated any further, and Paul had basically just gotten away with murder at that point. And he's most definitely getting off on the fact that he hasn't been caught yet for these fires. So by the end of fall 1992, county officials fully believe they have a serial arsonist on their hands with over 50 fires that have already caused literally millions of dollars in property damage. Investigators are really at a loss because they haven't yet dealt with someone who was seemingly able to fly under the radar for so long without getting caught or leaving behind any type of evidence or, or direct motive. So, Snohomish and King County, the two counties most affected by the recent string of fires, had combined to make an arson task force composed of members from both of their fire, police, and ATF departments, dubbing it the Snow King Task Force to take this fucker down. Arson dogs are now being brought into all the suspicious fire investigations, however, they still aren't finding any evidence of accelerants. It would literally seem like whoever starting these fires is doing it at night and literally just walking up to drapes or mattresses or wood tables and lawn chairs. I mean, just anything that will catch and light that shit on fire. Also, they noticed it was always from about the chest level, too. Investigations so far were only able to pull two of this dumbass's fingerprints off a window panel from fire number 28, but unfortunately the prints returned no match in the system, meaning that the assailant didn't seem to have a criminal record and was probably very young. So without even really knowing where to start as far as suspects go, the arson task force would request the assistance of the FBI's John Douglas for a behavioral profile analysis for the serial arsonist that they had so far been calling Spectre. This would take some time to get back though. And what's really fucked up about this, besides Paul's obvious disregard for human life, but it's also the fact that Paul is using his familiarity with the response times and his knowledge of the fire department coverage areas and literally just shitting on those living in the most vulnerable parts of town as far as a fire situation would go. All because it apparently somehow relieves his personal frustrations. 
It's such a selfish act of destruction, you know? Like, when he goes back to his home at night, he still has bills to pay, his job is still on the line, I just, I don't understand why it would get him off to see everyone else crash and burn next to him. It's pointless trying to understand some of these people, but... By winter of 1992, the four different counties of Snohomish, King, Pierce, and Kittitas were all subject to Paul's destruction and anger. As the weather dropped down, though, into colder temperatures, the fires did also decrease a bit, too, giving the firefighters somewhat of a break with a few days in between back-to-back -back calls, at least. Clear into the new year of 1993, there would be more fires set to business warehouses. One of them in the Everett area would actually turn up some boot prints that were found in the snow. This was one of the first major pieces of evidence towards their suspect at this point. Investigators would find that the boot pattern on these were from a very specific brand of shoe that was actually only sold in two different nearby stores, one of them being the Elderwood Mall not far from a lot of the scene of the fires. At fire number 42, detectives also found what appeared to be some urine there in the snow, so investigators carefully gathered it up for any possible DNA testing, but they found that the snow had diluted it way too much to be usable for testing. And by six months into the arson investigation and well over $30 million in property damage, there was finally someone who came forward with a tip on January 23rd of 1993. Their first real lead came from a woman named Bonnie who had called police to say that a couple weeks back, some fumbling idiot had bumped into her while walking down on the street near the scene of one of the fires. He seemed drunk at the time, but well-dressed and clean, and had sort of mumbled something about the nearby fire to her. She then watched him stumble into a blue sedan or a dark-colored car with a temporary license plate tag and an advertising card in the window. By the time she got around to calling police, it had been a couple weeks and she only vaguely remembered what the guy looked like and could only remember that the license plate had started with the letters K4M. But with this report, task members are looking into reports of blue cars in the area and realizing that there's about 500,000 of them that start with K4M, they would have to take a different route. So they instead start calling around to the locally owned advertising businesses, asking about their employee car models and their advertising window cards. A task force member had actually called Paul's dad George up on the phone too, because he happened to be one of the owners of this popular local advertising business and was asked about the window cards that they used, but because the witness description didn't match his company car, Paul was using his own car, the connection wasn't made yet. And it's risky to do, but because it's all they really had so far, police actually decide to go back and see if Bonnie can remember anything else about that night that could help with the investigation. Using forensic hypnosis, which we also saw in the Spokane, Washington, Fred, Kevin Co. case, but normally in the court of law, witnesses who are hypnotized usually can't testify later down the road. So police risk it anyways, just to see if they can at least find the person or persons responsible for all this chaos. So basically using some super deep relaxation techniques to spark the witness's memory, she is able to recall a tall, thin man who's well-dressed, with an Oxford shirt, and definitely had alcohol on his breath. They next brought in a forensic artist to do a composite sketch of the perp, and after two hours of dismissing facial features, they came up with a pretty good sketch of the man they named Spectre, looking straight up like a cross between Doc Holliday from the movie Tombstone and Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. I'm not even kidding. Along with the composite sketch, investigators also received their perp's behavioral profile, stating that this man would likely be a white male in his late to mid-30s. True. He would be an internalizer, is lashing out at society, and this man would be too cowardly to cause confrontation directly. Um, sounds like it. 
He would likely have a long history of interacting with fires, possible animal abuse, or cruelty to other children, maybe bedwetting, or what's called the homicidal triad. Um, definitely check. I don't know about the bedwetting, though. He's a police or fire department buff who has applied as a volunteer and was likely dismissed. Motherfucking check. He's an emotional loner whose relationships don't work out and his friendships don't last long. Another check. He would compensate for his low self-esteem with nice clothes and a fancy car, putting on the front that he has his shit together. Check. Lastly, he probably likes fetish porn, including bondage or other forms that surround the idea of control. Well, it was 1993, and I'm guessing his choices were pretty slim. But who knows, I think I could still probably put a check mark, having read that he acquired quite the porn addiction in general. And this is really where shit begins to pop off for Paul, because on January 27th of 1993, the Snow King Task Force had officially released three different sketches of possible suspects for the state's biggest serial arson case in history. They used two control sketches and the one true composite sketch to guard against false leads, and they also released a vague profile description drafted by the behavioral unit at the FBI. There was a pretty big press conference held to inform all the surrounding communities, and the sketches and information would also be available on the next day's front page news. So literally, the day after the press conference is held, Paul's father George is sitting down to drink his morning coffee and reading the newspaper when he sees the huge article aligned with the three sketches, one looking an awful lot like his son Paul. Then he goes and reads the behavioral profile. Can't dismiss a single thing that's been stated. Ooh, getting nervous now. Then George goes into the office and he double checks some of the company credit cards, finding that, yes, his own son has also been buying gas in some of the same areas that the fires were being reported. And his dad just knew that this asshole had been the one setting the fires all around town. And he was crushed, but he actually goes down and brings a picture of Paul into the police station. I mean, you know it's bad when you're such a piece of shit that your own dad is willing to turn you into the task force. He admitted he wasn't able to eliminate a single characteristic given in the profile. George then explained to police that his son did have an obsession with fire and had been suffering in his personal life at home before the recent string of fires started the summer before. So the Snow King Arson Task Force then immediately puts Paul under 24-hour surveillance for 10 days straight, hoping to catch him in the act of lighting something, anything, on fire. During that time, investigators are able to confirm on recent business cell phone records of Paul's and found that one of the lines was near the site of multiple fires on multiple dates. On February 3rd, Keller was seen wearing the specific hiking boot that was matched to the footprints found in the snow during November's span of fires. And Paul's parents, George and Margaret, know that the walls are closing in around Paul. They don't want him to leave. They knew they had to keep him around, so they opted to have one big family dinner. His brother Ben had admitted that he'd almost spilled the beans to his older brother Paul that the jig was up while they were driving over to his parents' house, but thankfully, he didn't. After this dinner, though, Paul had mentioned something to his parents about some plans of visiting some girlfriend he apparently had down in California, who I'd be willing to bet a lot of money didn't actually exist. But at that point, his parents knew it was over. His mom couldn't even talk to Paul without crying. She said she felt so nervous and conflicted like she was betraying her son, knowing that they would have to call the police as soon as he left. And before he did, Paul made sure to hug his dad, George, one last time, and he said that Paul really didn't seem like he wanted to let go, almost like he knew he was going to be arrested soon. But with the information that he might be going to California, police finally make their move on February 6th of 1993 and arrest Paul outside his apartment in Everett, Washington, first thing in the morning after that dinner. It was literally like 6.19 in the morning, and the cops are outside banging on his door. Hi. Hi, Detective Isaacs from the Everett Police Department. Yes, hi. Hi, Keller. 
He was charged with all the fires in Mount Lake Terrace and Everett and held on a $1 million bail at the Snohomish County Jail. Neighbors even told police that Paul seemed like a cop or a private investigator himself because he was always wearing a badge on his hip and was constantly running in and out of the apartment while on his cell phone. And in some fucking Mindhunters type of twist, task force agents thought a guy like Paul would react better to being treated as quite the big deal, so they brought him into the police station with a big ol' police convoy with every car using all its sirens on the way there. They opted to set up an interrogation room with big stacks of files, all these bulletin boards with newspaper clippings, his sketch, and his picture with a big red label that said identified. And even had his own fucking dad sitting there waiting for him in a chair like he does when you're 16 and you're sneaking back into your room after curfew. Paul's father George got up and hugged Paul one more time before telling him it's all over now and that life as he knew it before that morning will never be the same. And at first, Paul tried to say that he didn't do any of it. But then when they started buttering the fuck out of his ego, within 15 minutes, prickface Paul was singing like a fucking canary, practically bragging about the 32 fires he was charged with, while simultaneously admitting to setting 44 additional fires in Clay Ellum and Linwood. And seriously, this pompous dickface actually had the nerve to tell the police, I'm not the type of guy you should be putting into jail. You should dock my insurance or something. I'm not even kidding. Wow. Wow. Is that not one of the most fucking obnoxious things you've literally ever heard in your life? No, bitch, you need to go to fucking jail. The very next day, he then literally went out and showed investigators how he would just walk up and light shit on fire with a fucking big lighter for that entire six months of simulated hell. Did you commit the service? Yes. There, there was corrugated. You can see where some of it's left. Yeah. I'll do the same thing. That fast. I pulled around and the door was just wide open. And there I was in that state of mind and I lit a chair and she just went. And that was the only one that I really ever stayed to watch of all. It went real fast. fast. Very fast. It also went to multiple alarms very fast. Very fast. Yeah. In March of 1993, Paul Kenneth Keller first pled guilty to the 76 fires in Snohomish County. Because he would plead guilty to the crimes, there would only end up being a trial concerning his penalty, and Paul was looking at a lot of time in jail. Prosecutors were labeling him a terrorist and the biggest serial arsonist case in the state's history, so they wanted at least 75 years in prison. They had a clinical psychologist exam Paul and concluded that he's an absolute pyromaniac, and according to this Dr. Gary Grinnell, fire endowed this weak child, Paul Keller. His defense attorney, Royce Ferguson, tried to claim that Paul suffers from mental illness that was furthered by his prevalent drug and alcohol use. He was arguing that Paul needed help and not prison. They were requesting a lesser sentence with mandatory treatment as they believe it's unreasonable for this mentally ill man to spend the entire rest of his life behind bars. His attorney can be quoted in saying, Paul is not the Ted Bundy of arsons. He is not a sociopath. Under the stress of bankruptcy and a failed marriage, Keller disintegrated. The question is whether he's an evil sociopath who should be put in prison forever or whether we should try to redeem him. Yeah, I don't know about that one, though, because there was also letters being written and sent into the courts detailing the huge amount of loss that the families who had suffered from these fires were experiencing. 
Prosecutors had letters from victims who had lost every single penny they'd ever earned, while Paul didn't really seem to be the least bit remorseful for his crimes. So in May of 1993, Paul Keller would originally be sentenced to 75 years in prison at the Claylam Bay State Prison. But we ain't done yet, because don't forget about those three women who died, you guys. After reinvestigating the Seattle Four Freedoms Retirement Home fire that had originally been attributed to the displaced cigarette, investigators would now be charging Paul with three counts of second-degree murder for the deaths of Bertha Nelson, Adeline Stockness, and Mary Doris. On December 28th of 1993, after already serving six months in prison, Paul Keller was then brought back into King County Superior Court so that he could again face his additional charges. And in a real dickheadish move, Paul would only plead guilty to the two counts of second-degree murder, and on the third, he was opting to take the Alfred plea. He specifically entered the two guilty pleas for the two women who had died of smoke inhalation, and the Alfred plea on the one who had suffered a heart attack and died. He was basically saying that he wasn't responsible for that woman's heart attack or her death, but that he wouldn't try to push it in trial, so he's just going to plea, but he's maintaining his innocence. It would now be up to the courts to again decide what his new penalty should be because he's already serving 75 years as it is, and he's only 27 years old. Colleen Woodworth, the great-great-grandniece of 93-year-old victim Bertha Nelson, had detailed to the courts how she had to tell Bertha's 97-year-old sister that she had died in a fire, which was the hardest thing that she'd ever had to do. Which can you freaking imagine? Another family member of a victim, Verna Kellogg, the daughter of seven-year-old Adeline Stockness, said that she had previously read in the newspapers how Paul said that he hoped God would forgive him. And she was like, I don't even know what God he's talking to. Which, fucking for real though, come on. His defense lawyers were again requesting that the courts just stay with the penalty of the original 75 years since he's going to remain in there for the rest of his life anyway with that. But with Paul's plea of guilt, hearing from the state prosecutors and including some of the family of those who had perished in the fires, as well as some of the Seattle retirement home officials, all of them hoping the judge would give Paul the maximum penalty possible for his extremely reckless string of fires, which he also agreed. On March 11th of 1994, Paul Kenneth Keller was officially handed the sentence of 107 years in prison, one for every fire in which he was convicted. Records show that Paul will be eligible for parole in 2079, meaning that he would have to live until he's at least 113 years old, so pretty unlikely that he'll ever be outside of prison walls again. It's honestly too bad they can't set him up to die in a fire, though. Paul's family released a statement apologizing to the entire community for his actions, saying, In this horrible time of sorrow and suffering, we wish to express our deepest compassion to every person, every family, every business, and every church harmed by our son and our brother, Paul Kenneth Keller. Pain and loss also came to our home, and our prayers are with you. Now, Paul's dad, George, actually was awarded a $25,000 reward that had been set up by the Snow King Arson Task Force, but George actually turned right around and gave it back to the Trinity Lutheran Church that had been burned down. He was hoping that the money could be used to help the families in need that lost their homes during the string of fires. And he was genuinely apologetic for the actions of his child. I mean, his family was clearly crushed that a member of their own had hurt so many people within their community. For your pain and your loss, we shall never forget to pray for your healing, restoration, and peace. May God in his help, in his grace, help all of us. 
The Washington Insurance Council also then awarded Keller and a few other people a total of $46,000 that they had raised for those helping to catch the dickhead who was literally causing the millions of dollars in damages with all the fires. Now here's your trigger warning for sexual abuse claims real quick, but interestingly, Paul waited until after the two trials to say in an interview with Cairo TV that he had been previously sexually molested by a volunteer firefighter while on a firehouse tour at the age of 12. More specifically, he claims that he was made to perform oral sex at gunpoint, and he said that this happened on two other occasions as a minor, and that him and this person had continued to know each other for the next 15 years. He explained to Cairo TV reporters that this information wasn't a story, nobody knows this, I've been holding this inside for so long. And he explained he didn't want to talk about it in court because he didn't want to use it as an excuse for his crimes. Which is interesting. Currently, Paul is housed at the Monroe Men's Correctional Complex in Washington State and is now 54 years old. According to his profile on loveaprisoner.com, Paul is currently seeking someone open-minded, frisky, and playful to talk with. Dude specifically said, no icebergs need apply. So, I probably won't be sending him a letter anytime soon, idiot. In 1995, CBS actually released a made-for-television movie depicting the crimes of Paul Keller, starring a super young and cute Neil Patrick Harris as P.O.S. Paul. I do believe his family backed the making of this movie as they even host it on their own YouTube channel now. Paul's case is also covered on one of the hundreds of Forensic Files episodes, luckily even one of the ones on Netflix in Collection 8 called Fireproof. When speaking during an interview for Forensic Files, he almost seems friendly with like the casual way he discusses the fires, which bothers me because he's literally oblivious to all the pain he caused. He's such a fucking twat. It's very hard to rationally explain why I did that because there's no rational reason. I was not angry at Trinity. I was not, but I was very empty. And perhaps I thought that others needed to be as empty as I was. Um, but it was not a valid thing to do. In January of 2017, the Investigation Discovery Channel's show Evil Lives Here documented the story from the perspective of Paul's parents. You can find it on Season 2, Episode 1, titled Not My Boy. I found it on demand in the ID app and through my cable provider. This is usually a pretty good show in general, but this episode gives a really good insight to the people that raised Paul. They really do seem like great people and not the typical set of parents in denial about their good little boys who never do anything wrong. The complete opposite of Kevin Coe's parents, or at least his mom for sure. If you don't know who Kevin Coe is, like I said before, definitely check out that episode I have. He's called the South Hill Rapist, and he's also a total piece of shit, but his mom is even worse. But like I said, Paul's parents are actually great. They recognize the terrible things their son has done, and they've done a lot to help repair the community that their son destroyed. His father currently runs George Keller Ministries on YouTube, along with his wife, where they post daily notes about Jesus on their profiles. It's honestly super cute. And I really just love that they aren't all, my boy would never do this, you never got the wrong guy, blah blah. Like, these parents are a nice breath of fresh air when it comes to others like Chris Watts or Scott Peterson's parents. Now, Paul Keller was the biggest serial arsonist in U.S. history until 2004 when a man named Thomas Sweat had admitted to setting over 350 fires in a 30-year period around the Washington, D.C. area. 
Now, we know Washington State doesn't lack in killers or fires, and in Paul's case, he sort of just combined the two to make one of the biggest examples of how, despite a very loving upbringing and seemingly every opportunity in the world, you can still end up with a total piece of shit. Quickly, I have a few shoutouts before I have a pretty big announcement to make. I need to thank Stevie for recently joining the patrons of the Queendom, so thank you so much for your support, Stevie. And then I also have to say thank you to Trisha and Sammy Swearheart for leaving a couple really nice reviews on Apple Podcasts. Those really help my podcast get suggested to others, so muchas, muchas gracias, girlies. Next, I wanted to give you guys an official heads up that I will be taking my season break soon. I like to do them every eight or nine episodes, and this is actually number 28, and it sort of snuck up on me, honestly. I'll be taking the holiday season off from making new episodes to spend some time with my family, and this year my little girl is old enough to finally enjoy some Christmas traditions, so we'll definitely be making some special memories since this whole year was trash, basically. While the podcast is on a break, I will continue making the bonus episodes for patrons, so please, if you're in need for more content, definitely check it out. I currently have a five-parter on the Darley Routier case and a two-part on Jody Arias. I just did a four-part refresher on the Scott and Lacey Peterson case, too, so there's definitely enough episodes to keep you content during the break. But again, I'll give you another heads up on the next episode, so please catch me back here in two weeks with my last episode drop of 2020. And it's it's a weird one, to say the least. Anyways, so fits 2020 in general. As always, you guys, remember to stay safe, lock your fucking doors. Alright, you guys. Bye. And that was the tea. I hope you enjoyed my rendition of the story. And if so, please tell all your creepy ass friends about it. You can find the sources I use for the episode in its description. You can find me slinging those memes on Instagram at True Crime Queen. Check them out if you need a laugh after all this dark shit. If you'd like to support the podcast, check out patreon.com slash gender the true crime queen, where you can find even more of the killer content. 